Hello and welcome to episode three of The Bottom Line with me, Ian Irving, and him, Danny Higginbotham. This week, we're going to drill down into two massive matches. First in the Premier League, Chelsea against Tottenham Hotspur, and then in the Champions League quarter-final, the first leg of Liverpool against Manchester City. We're going to be looking at where it's all gone wrong for Chelsea. Antonio Conte, according to Danny, hasn't lost the dressing room. We're going to be looking at the lessons that Pep learned from their only Premier League defeat of the season to Liverpool. We're going to be looking at the secret to Liverpool's improved defensive record and we'll even find time to talk about bad Pamela Anderson tattoos won't we Danny? Yes we will and uh, I've criticised myself there so it's alright but no the tactical side of things I think everybody loves it now people are desperate for it now people talk about the players but managers are just as important and I think looking at the four teams that you just mentioned there they all have their tactical approach so we're going to have a look at how the game could be won and lost the strengths and weaknesses of both teams and just how the games might play out so when you're watching the games at home could be something for you to look out for. Let's get started then. Danny, why these two matches in particular? Why are we looking at those? I think when you look at teams now, I think in Premier League and in Europe as well, the tactical side of things is huge. I think people have a real thirst for that knowledge of how teams are successful and how teams may actually fail as well. And I just think when you're looking at these four teams that are involved, tactically they've all got their strengths and the weaknesses. It might give a little bit of a heads up as in terms of the way that the games could go. Okay, how will the first game go then? Chelsea against Tottenham. What do you think? I think it's going to be a a very good game just because of simple fact. Obviously, Chelsea are at home. They've got to go out and win the game. They're five points behind Spurs, who were in fourth themselves. And one of the things that stands out is that the amount of times that we've heard this season people talking about Conte, he's lost the dressing room, he's, the players aren't playing for him. I think that's a load of rubbish. Players are selfish. It's as simple as that. You know, sports people are selfish. And the last thing they want to be is involved in a team that's gone from winning the Premier League to then finishing outside the top four the next season. So I don't buy into that for one minute. I think it's a lot more simple than that. I think the problems they had arose in the summer, losing, well, allowing Matic to join Manchester United. Making one of your competitors strong whilst making yourself weaker. Diego Costa, he got 20 goals for Chelsea last season when they won the Premier League. And John Terry as well. I know he didn't play as many games, but the experience that he has in the dressing room, there's no doubt about it, that would have been a huge loss for them. And we're seeing you know, the knock-on effect for Aston Villa this season. He's a mainstay of their team and doing well there. So I think them three players and the fact that the players that have been brought in to replace them aren't like for like. Morata's very different than Diego Costa. Bakayoko, very different than Matic. And obviously, like I say, there's no one really to replace John Terry in the dressing rooms in terms of the experience and, and the leadership within the dressing room. But I also think there's a tactical side as well to it. If you look at Chelsea last season, they obviously started with a four at the back. And I think it, it wasn't until they got dismantled by Arsenal that they changed to a three. And what they did really well last season, so obviously they played like a 3-4-3. Three, three. All right, it could have been classed as a 3-4-2-1, but the three main men up front, so obviously Diego Costa, you had Hazard and then Pedro Willian, they played really narrow. And it was a nightmare for opposition, not just centre-backs, but full-backs. Because they were playing so narrow, what was happening was the two centre-backs were actually getting outnumbered. When I played full-back before, first and foremost, the most important player that I've got to try and deal with is the winger. So from Chelsea's point of view, it was their wing-backs. So what was happening was the wing-backs for Chelsea obviously giving great width. The two full-backs were dragged out at the same time at times because both wing-backs would go forward at the same time. All of a sudden, your two centre-backs, they're dealing with playing against three centre-forwards. And because the full-backs and the centre-backs were stretched out, there was so much space in between the centre-backs and the full-backs. That's where the pace of Hazard, William, Pedro was getting in and taking real advantage of it. And that's what gave Chelsea great success last season. They had two out-and-out sitters. So at times they would defend with a five and they would attack with a five. You had Kante sitting and you had Matic sitting. 
you've lost that now because Bakayoko wants to get a little bit further forward. Drinkwater isn't obviously playing as much. And Diego Costa is a very different centre-forward than the likes of Morata and Giroud. Now what teams are doing, they're saying to Chelsea, right, OK, we know what you did to us last season. So what we're going to do, we're going to play narrow against you. So we're going to allow you to have all the width that you want. So that means that that back four comes in really narrow. So at any time, they've got three going forward for Chelsea, but they've got four defenders that can deal with them. So they're saying to Moses, uh, Zappa Costa, Alonso, whoever's playing in them wing-back positions, you can have the ball, you can put the crosses into the box because, not being disrespectful, unless it's Morata or unless it's Giroud, very rarely are them two going to play together they're the only person that's realistically going to win the ball that's coming into the box in the air. So if you think about it, two centre-backs, an opposite full-back as well, they'll probably think that they can deal with that. And that's where Chelsea found that a little bit more difficult and people say, well, Chelsea defensively, they're not as good as, as what they were last year. They've only conceded three more than what they had done at this stage last season in the league, but they've scored 10 less. They've got 16 less points. That's been the biggest problem and not scoring as many goals because teams have, I'm not saying found them out, but teams have found a way to play against them, which is making Chelsea have to play a different way. If you've seen that though, Danny, surely Antonio Conte will have seen the same sort of issues. So why has he not adapted the way that Chelsea have played if teams have worked them out, like you say? Well, I think if you go back to January, everybody was talking about, obviously I know that Giroud came to the club, but everybody was talking about Peter Crouch has been linked to them. Uh, Ashley Barnes was linked to them. Andy Carroll was linked to them. And everybody was getting carried away and saying, why are they going after players from Burnley? Why are they going after players from Stoke, from West Ham? It was the type of play that he was after. And I think he's realised the fact that teams are giving them the whip now. Teams are saying, listen, we will give you the whip so you can cross the ball into the box. So you need that focal point. You need that target, man. That's why he signed Giroud. I, I believe so, yeah. yeah. Because if Morata's not playing, then with all the goodwill in the world, Hazard is a world-class player. But he ain't going to out-jump a six-foot-two centre-back, you know, and score with a towering header because that's not his job. That's not how he plays. So I think he's tried to solve that problem by bringing in Giroud. And I actually think Giroud is actually ahead of Morata now. I thought he would be an outstanding signing for Chelsea. I thought they got him for a very good price with the way that the transfer fees are escalating all the time now. And he's proven to be that. So now what he is, it's not just a focal point from crosses, but if teams are pressing high against Chelsea, they can go that bit longer. They can go over the press. They can get the ball to Giroud. And automatically, when you put Giroud on the pitch or Morata to a certain extent, but more so Giroud, Aspilicueta becomes a better player. Because we know that when they play the back three, Aspilicueta, a natural fullback, he likes to push out with the ball. And he loves to play that ball. The amount of assists he's had for Morata so far this season. So at times, in particular, the Watford game, he was actually going forward with the ball, but there was no presence there. So he couldn't play that ball. All of a sudden, the wing-backs, when they're getting the ball, if you've got that Giroud in the box, you can actually put that cross in. It doesn't have to be inch perfect. So by having that bigger player and by having that target, man, more so Giroud than Morata, in my opinion, like I say, it actually brings the best out in other plays. But not just that enables Hazard to go and play in his favoured position. And that's what you have to do. You have to build your team around your best players and have them playing in the best positions. But in recent weeks, he has played Hazard through the middle still, even though he's had Giroud and Morata fit mm. and sat on the bench. So why has he done that then if it's so key? I don't think we'll see that situation again where it's Hazard from the start being the main man through the middle because I think you take away a lot of his attributes because he's fantastic just dropping that little bit deeper. You know, you don't need him to be the focal point because he ends up getting a little bit detached from the rest of the team you want him picking up the ball and he's got plays in front of him that he can pick the pass to because his vision is wonderful so I'd be very surprised if we saw many more games where either Giro or Morata wasn't playing in the team because I think they're absolutely vital to bring the best out in the players around them Let's look at Tottenham then we've talked a fair amount there about Chelsea so 
There's one key issue, isn't there, really, for yeah. Tottenham, and that's Harry Kane's absence. He scored 35 goals already this season, which is just incredible, isn't it? Son is second top scorer with 18 goals, and he's likely to be the man to replace mm. Kane in that forward position. And that brings a totally different dynamic for Tottenham. It does. With Harry Kane, people have asked me, you know, all right, he scored so many goals, but what is so good about him? Just watch the goals he scored. When we would be in a dressing room before a game and you knew if you were playing centre-back, you were playing against a particular centre-forward, two days before the game, you get DVDs on that centre-forward and you're saying, right, this is his strength, this is his weaknesses, this is the type of goals he scored. Is he a goal poacher? Is he a player that will pick the ball up on the edge of the box and shoot Will he drop deep? Is he very good when crosses are coming into the box? With Harry Kane, you'd be watching a DVD for about 72 hours. <laughs> he's good at everything. Because he's good at everything from tappings, towering headers coming into the box. One of the things that he's so good at, and it's not really been mentioned before, is when he drops deep and he picks the ball up, he uses centre-backs when he gets the ball to bend the ball around them. So he actually uses them as a little bit of a a little bit of a target, so to speak. If you can get it around him, the goalkeeper's going to be unsighted. And it's amazing. If you watch the games that he plays, the amount of times he does that, where he bends it around the centre-back who's coming out to him and the goalkeeper's unsighted. So he's very difficult to stop. I think the fact that him, Deli Alli and Christian Eriksen have got a fantastic understanding between the three of them. We saw it last season. We're seeing it again this season. So it's not just about Harry Kane being out of the team. It's the effect that it has on the likes of Dele Alli and Christian Eriksen. Son has had a magnificent season, no doubt about that, but he is a very different centre-forward than Harry Kane. He's a player that I think he's got good pace. He likes to stretch the game, likes to try and get in behind. So what you might see from someone like Son is instead of him coming towards the ball, because Harry Kane would do that quite often and Deli Alley would go beyond him, I think you'll see Son will be the one that will look to stretch the game and try and create that space between Chelsea's midfield and defence where the likes of Eriksen in particular can get in and start dictating play. A big theme around Tottenham is this idea that they're going to lose players if they don't win something mm. soon. Obviously, Kyle Walker is probably the most notable example of yeah. someone who's left recently and has already won a trophy very quickly. And you've got a situation with Danny Rose, with Toby Alderweireld, even rumours about Ericsson, Ali Kane, all those sort of things. But does Pochettino deserve credit for the way he's keeping this group together? Because you've seen with Walker, he's gone, but Kieran Trippier's come in. Yeah. He's ended up first choice for Tottenham and England. And actually, Davis has played a lot. Mm -hmm. in Rose's absence with injury and also selection too. So how much credit does Pochettino deserve to keep it together and keep it moving forward? I think a lot. And I think also the fact that he's, he's maturing. The players are maturing under him. They're becoming better. Let's not forget it's quite a relatively young squad. I believe that if you look at most of the squads that are, that are in the top six, if none of them teams sign players in the summer, Tottenham would be right up there as in progression because there's players that are still, not in the infancy of the career, but they've still got so much to go until they actually reach their prime that they're going to keep improving all the time. Tottenham's biggest problem, and you hear people say it all the time, they'll say in the summer, Tottenham have got to go and get a marquee signing, they've got to go and get X, Y and Z like the other teams are doing. That's all well and good. But you can guarantee if you bring a marquee sign, he's going to want marquee wages as well. So if a player goes into Tottenham on £200,000 £250, a week, and who's going to be knocking on the door afterwards and say, oh, well, hang on a second, Christian Eriksen, Deli Alley, Harry Kane, Dembele, the list goes on. So at some point, that's going to have to change. I really want Tottenham to win something. I really do, because they've got a lot of English-based players in there, and it'd be a real shame to see that break up. But yeah, they do have to win something soon. You know, They don't want to continue to be the nearly men. You started this chat talking about the position of the two teams in the table mm. and how crucial potentially this game could be in the battle for the top four. A lot of the time, us in the media, we build up this idea of these matches being pivotal and these head-to-head -head clashes being so important. When you've been in battles directly with teams and you've played against those sides, mm. how crucial are these matches really? 
it comes down purely to mentality. Because what you'll find is when you play in these big games, is that, and we have mentioned it previously, is that there will more often than not be a player that does something out of character, which then leads to the opposition scoring a goal. So the build-up towards these games, I've not played in a game of that magnitude as in terms of the top teams, but I'm talking when you're down at the bottom, the games are just as important when you're playing teams around you. Of course, yeah. And it's the build-up to the game. The manager has a huge role to play don't get involved with the supporters. Don't get hyped up by it as well. You know, yes, you want the adrenaline to be flowing a certain amount, but not to the point where you actually go and do something that you shouldn't be doing. Go and do a stupid tackle, get yourself sent off, try something that you wouldn't do normally. And that's why these games can be a little bit cagey because players that want to express themselves sometimes won't express themselves because they might be a little bit fearful of making a mistake. But I just think from Tottenham's point of view, this is not a bad game for them because they're going to Chelsea. They know the onus is on Chelsea. They know that Chelsea have to win the game. Simple as that because they're five points behind Spurs. So, you know, Spurs can to a certain extent sit back a little bit, allow Chelsea to do all the running. And we know even without Harry Kane, Tottenham have got some fantastic pace going forward. It will be, from that point of view, a really good game to watch because like I say Chelsea are going to have to do all the running. I think Pochettino will be saying to his players, listen, they've got to come at us. That's going to suit us. Tottenham's problems this season, in particular at home, I know they've saw it at Anna, but early on the season was when teams sat back. So what you had, whereas when Tottenham are at their best, you have Harry Kane on one line. I know he's injured and he's missing. So it would be Sun, you'd have him on one line. You'd have Deli Alley on another one. You'd have Ericsson at the deepest point of it. When teams sit back, what happens is Harry Kane could only go so far. Then you'd have Deli Alley ended up on top of him and Ericsson likewise. So you could have two players effectively marking three of Tottenham's most important players. Whereas away from home, you know, Tottenham quite happy to go and play in a counter-attack. And I think against Chelsea especially, they can go and do that. So it should be a fascinating game. And like I say, a draw's not going to be good enough for Chelsea. Will it be a draw then? Can you make a prediction, Danny? You've done all right so far. Yeah. You, you weren't I, too far wrong with Stoke Everton, were you? You were only 10 minutes away from the draw. I know, 2-1, yeah. Um, and went for 1-1. I am actually going to go for, because of what's riding it and the fact that Kane's out, I am going to go for a Chelsea win. Okay. I think Chelsea have just got enough in it. I'm expecting the likes of Hazard to, to come really to the fore because these are the games that you need to really be looking to boss. So I'm going to go for a Chelsea win. Let's move it on then because after the weekend's Premier League action is out of the way, we've got two Premier League teams head-to-head in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Liverpool against Manchester City and there's been two very stark contrasting matches between these teams already this season. A 5-0 defeat for Liverpool at Manchester City and a 4-3 defeat for City at Liverpool. So, the first leg's at Liverpool. Does that benefit City? Because that's what we normally say. No, I don't think it does. I think it's... When the draw was made, I said at the time, I don't think it'll concern Liverpool too much that they're away from home, the second leg. I think that when you play against Manchester City, they play the same home or away. They take the game to the opposition. And I think it's a game that could really suit Liverpool from that point of view. I think Guardiola, we know the football that he likes to play. I think his teams are usually that dominant or usually that good that he doesn't really seem to change things too much. So that doesn't really make a difference for Liverpool. I think they'll be comfortable when Liverpool beat them 4-3. Manchester City had 65% of the possession at Anfield. And Liverpool were comfortable with that. Liverpool are at their best when they're without the ball because they want to be able to counter-attack. The more possession that you have as a team, the more space you're going to leave in behind because it means teams are allowing you onto them. And that's brilliant for Liverpool. So if you look at, I think, Liverpool this season, their three highest possessions this season, I think, have been Burnley, Swansea and Crystal Palace. Got beat at Swansea, drew with Burnley at home and beat Crystal Palace at home. You know, whereas you look at their lesser possessions, 4-0 at home to Arsenal, they had 48% possession. So they're happy with that. They're happy to sit back and allow the other teams to do all the running. Now, I've seen Manchester City so many times this season 
and more often than not, they come up with an answer to teams that want to sit deep against them. So we've spoken about it before. Two particular games I did. I did the Swansea game away and I did the Watford game at home for Manchester City. Swansea decided that they were going to sit back as Watford did. But what they did, we've spoken about it briefly, the two fullbacks went into central midfield. So they created a midfield free with Fernandinho. The two midfielders then around him then moved further on and it separated the opposition midfield. Against Watford at home, Sterling and, um, and Sane played really wide. The two centre-backs and the two full-backs got driven. There was huge spaces in between them. David Silver and De Bruyne went in them. So they always have a way of actually getting the better against these teams that sit back. Now, the one thing Manchester City will do, they will leave themselves open. But more often than not, the teams that Manchester City play against, the centre-forward's isolated. He's a million miles away from the rest of the team. So if you've got Fernandinho and your two centre-backs dealing with the, the opposition centre-forward, doesn't matter whether you're Usain Bolt, you're not getting up to support him quick enough in time before that centre-forward's lost the ball. Differences with Liverpool, though. Salah and Mane. That is the difference. You can guarantee Firmino will stay through the middle, when Manchester City are attacking, Salah and Mane, they will do their defensive side of things. But they then, when they get the ball, they'll keep the width because that's where the fullbacks, that's the positions where you can get Manchester City down the sides. But you've got to do it quickly. Most teams can't do it quickly because Manchester City, everybody talks about how good they are, but their pressing is incredible. So more often than not, it's just a hopeless punt. But what you will see with Liverpool is that a hopeless punt could actually be all right because you've got someone occupying the middle. And you've got the two wingers in the wide area. So anywhere in that area, the whole width of the pitch, they're going to have a player. And then what happens is, is obviously Salah and Mane, that's when they will drive inside. Firmino's fantastic, you know, clock calls in the engine of the team. The amount of times he drops deep, drags centre-backs with him, creates a space for the electric pace of, of Salah and Mane. So that's where I think Liverpool can be on the back foot but go very, very quickly onto the front foot. We've got a fan question about the game as well, which is, it's been great to get some responses mm. on Twitter. Keep those coming, please, in, in future pods as well. So Ridwan Patel is asking, how can City win the midfield battle this time? Liverpool did a good job of getting Chan to initiate the press when City came in with Vinaldum and Ox holding. It limited space for City's number eight behind the Liverpool midfield, as well as their passing options, Danny. David Silva. Yeah, yeah we, simple we, as that. Yeah, we're used to seeing a midfield three of Fernandinho sitting, obviously, and David Silva and De Bruyne. That game, it ended up Fernandinho, Gundogan and De Bruyne. But what happened was, is that instead of Fernandinho sitting and then David Silva and De Bruyne getting into them spaces in front, Gundogan was actually sitting with Fernandinho, so it was only De Bruyne there. So when you see De Bruyne, how many times does he link up with David Silva? He didn't have that link up there. Did Klopp make them do that, though, because of the way he positioned the midfield, which is sort of what Ridwan is asking? Yeah, I, I would imagine so, because Liverpool now, they will have two sitting midfielders. So it's very difficult to get behind them. So what you've got to do is drag them out. Now, Fernandinho could drag them out to a certain extent. But what you find is that David Silva and De Bruyne, we talk about them being more advanced, but originally they will drag them out. So they're happy to sit there. If I'm playing against a team that's got David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne in, I don't want them to have time and space in the ball. So if they're sitting deep to try and drag out the midfielders, I'm going to go and stop them. All of a sudden, that's when that gap then appears. So you can go to David Silva, who may be dropping a little bit deep. De Bruyne goes. You can go to De Bruyne, who might sit a little bit deep at times. David Silva's gone. Whereas Gundogan in the game at Anfield, where Liverpool won 4-3, he was constantly sitting, so there was no real change between, whereas there is with David Silva and De Bruyne. They're never on the same line. You know, one will go, one will stay. So I think that's how it will make things different from Manchester City's point of view. And 
when the ball gets to David Silver and Kevin De Bruyne, they're magicians, they're artists, they're just so good to watch. And people talk about, imagine if you had the De Bruyne team, imagine if you had the David Silver type playing team. They've got two of them players in their <laughs> yeah. team. That yeah. is incredible. Going back to something you just mentioned there then, about two holding midfielders for mm. Liverpool. Their defensive record has improved a lot yeah. lately. Now, a lot of people will look at Virgil van Dijk you know, the world's most expensive defender or there or thereabouts and say, that's why. But you've got a different idea. Yeah, in my opinion, it started to happen well before Van Dijk come in. You know, so if we just use the the Spurs game away at Wembley where they lost 4-1, use that as a starting point. So up until that game, and including that game, they conceded 16 goals in nine Premier League games. The 22 after that, they've only conceded two more. They've conceded 18. So... Everyone's looking, well, yeah, okay, well, they're still playing the same system. They are playing the same system, but they're playing with two sitting midfielders now. And I always believe, because we spoke about Liverpool like to be in a counter-attacking team, but there's only so many times in the Premier League that they can be a counter-attacking team because 95% of the games, they're the team that has the onus on them. So the more possession you have, the more open you are to the counter-attack. And the thing is with Liverpool, before that Tottenham game, they were playing with three players behind the ball. So you had your two centre-backs and your one defence midfielder. Your two full-backs would fly forward. Three players can't cover the width of the pitch. I always believe if you're a top team, you've got to have four players behind the ball. So that could be two centre-backs and two defensive midfielders. It could be three centre-backs and one defensive midfielder. It can be two centre-backs, a defensive midfielder and a full-back. The way Liverpool do it now, they play with that box. So what it means is that you have your two centre-backs, your two defensive midfielders. That means that if the opposition then counter on them, the runs from the two defensive midfielders can be out into the wide areas to cover the fullback runs. The recovery runs from the fullbacks can then be into that central midfield position. So at all times, Liverpool have got a four behind the ball. And I think it's been such an advantageous thing for them. I think it's worked really well. And Klopp's really not had any credit for this. Everybody just talks about the fact of Liverpool scoring so many goals. They are. But defensively, since that Tottenham game, they have really tightened up. So yes, Van Dijk is obviously going to help, but it was happening before him. So Klopp needs to, well, deserves, in my opinion, great credit because he's seen it and gone, right, OK, we're a little bit open. We're actually at our most vulnerable when we're attacking because we're open to the counter-attack. So what I'm going to do, and he's managed to do it, is play with two sitting midfielders, allowing one to go further forward, whether it be Oxlade-Chamberlain, whether it be Chan, whether it be Milner. It was Coutinho for a while when he was still obviously at the football club. So he's managed to shore things up defensively, make them stronger defensively, whilst actually scoring more goals. The best defence in the Premier League, though, this season has been Manchester yeah. City. And there's been one sort of standout feature, really, of that defence, and that's been the goalkeeper, Edison. Mm. He's been a revelation. I mean, Mo Salah's had a fantastic season, of course, and, and rightly being lauded as the signing of the of the yeah. of last summer. But Edison's up there as well, isn't he? Yeah, 100%. He's replaced Bravo, who had a very indifferent time at Manchester City. Obviously, he's still there, but it didn't work out for him. Manchester City play risk and reward football. They take plenty of risks to try and drag the opposition out. When they lose the ball in the opposition final third, they will all press really high. And when you do that, that means that you've got to have a goalkeeper that's happy to be a sweeper. And that's what he is. You know, he, probably a better outfield player than me. Not saying much. Like, he he actually was a left back as well, you know. Oh, God, you more pressure on him. He's definitely better than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's a common influence. So the centre-backs know that we can push up high against centre-forwards that might be quick because we know if the ball goes over our head, his starting position is going to be actually advanced or just on the edge of the 18-yard box. I think, you know, if you go back to his time, at, um, he started off at Rio Ave 
And O'Black, who's now another one of the best goalkeepers in the world at Atletico Madrid, he went loan to Rio Ave from Benfica. When he then went back to Benfica, made his name. When he moved to Atletico, he then said to the powers that be at Benfica, listen, there's a goalkeeper at Rio Ave, go and have a look at him and his Edison. And the rest is history. He's got to go down as one, as one of the best goalkeepers in the world now. But the way football is going now... You can't just be a shot stopper. You've got to be good with the ball at your feet. You know, you look at Bayern Munich under Guardiola. It was all about Neuer. You know, I'm old school. So first and foremost, I want my goalkeeper to be able to stop the ball going into the back of the net. But I think the way that Guardiola looks at it is that when all teams are playing with 10 players, his team are playing with 11. So they've always got that extra man. And it works so well. If it's not on, they'll go back to him. They know technically he's so good with the ball at his feet. Whether it be short passes, whether it be long passes, we see when Sterling and, and Sane keep their width. He can ping a pass like a quarterback does in American football. He's absolutely incredible. The two centre-backs will split at times for him to actually get the ball. He's brilliant and he's been an unbelievable signing. And what stands out most for me with Edison is that go back to the Liverpool game at Manchester City early in the season when he went off with what looked like a horrific injury when he collided with um, with Mane. Everybody was saying, how long is he going to be out for? Weeks, it's going to be months. He played the next game in the Champions League. So that tells you all you need to know about a goalkeeper. You want your goalkeeper to be tough, to be ready. When he had to go off against Liverpool, he went and got his treatment. Then he came come and sat back on the bench and watch the rest of the game. That tells you all you need to know. People say the goalkeepers are crazy, but that challenge looked awful. Yeah. But if you know that you've got a goalkeeper like that, that can come back so quickly from something that looked as horrific as it did, that tells you he's, he's there for you. He is that last line of defence and, you know, that character shows that he's been a huge signing for them. Let me just read you some of his stats from this season. You've talked about his passing yeah. and his accuracy for goalkeepers is the first in the Premier League, as you'd expect. 84.9%. The closest goalkeeper to him is Hugo Lloris at Tottenham, which is 75.1%. Mm. So he's way ahead of anyone else. And actually within the City team, now this can vary, of course, depending on the types of passes they're making. But his accuracy has been better than Kevin De Bruyne. It's been better than Leroy Zane. It's been better than Raheem Sterling. But in terms of being a goalkeeper and the basics and what you were talking about mm. in terms of making saves and being brave and all the things that go into that, he's conceded less goals per game than any other keeper in the league. He's kept 14 clean sheets. Only David De Gea has kept more. And his save percentage is just over 70%. Now, in the whole of the league, only De Gea, Pope and Fabianski have actually got a better save percentage. So not only is he impressing with his feet, mm. he's also doing it with his hands, which was, of course, a major issue with Claudio Bravo last year. And obviously, the most impressive aspect of Edison is his range of tattoos. Yeah. He's, he's just unbelievable. He's not the only one with an incredible tattoo, is he? His are incredible probably in a good sense. Mine are incredible in a, in a really bad sense, a really naive, young sense. And I've got a tattoo on my arm that's near enough an ode to uh, Pamela Anderson. I was away with one of my friends and we were in a bar in Gran Canaria and we just decided one night, obviously we'd had a few to drink and it was like, yeah, come on, we're, we're going to get tattoos in a moment. So we had to go through with it. So we've got loads to choose from and I've decided to go with barbed wire around my right arm and then like another zigzag going through it. Why, Danny? That's the only question I can ask. I wish I could give you an answer and there's nothing and since then I thought right what can you use to cover it up and it's just like you can't cover it up with anything and the worst thing about it was I got it done and then because like you're young you're naive and things like that they're saying to me you've got to keep it covered up I'm in Gran Canaria where it's like 100 degrees and I'm thinking to myself I'm not going to keep it covered up because then you know the rest of my body's going to get a little bit of a tan and I'm going to have this like white captain's armband around my arm so I thought to myself I'm not going to cover it up I'll be all right 
come the end of the holiday, it started to fade. So not only have I got an awful tattoo on my arm, but I've had to have it redone. So I've had to go through pain twice for a tattoo that doesn't look great. But I'm going to say something about one of my my teammates as well. He's you mean still someone's good... got a worse one? Surely not. He'll tell me that it's not worse, but <laughs> it is without doubt worse than mine. So I played with Andy Griffin at Stoke and he's, he's a really good friend of mine. He's, he's a great lad and he won't take this to heart at all. But if he does, I'm not bothered anyway. <laughs> <laughs> when he came to Stoke, he had this Tweety Pie with a shotgun. And it was fully, you know, the, the yellow Tweety Pie and the gun. So he had Tweety Pie with a shotgun on his shoulder on the left-hand side. And I said, you've got to do something about that tattoo. I said, you're making my Pam Anderson barbed wire look half decent. You're making it look all right. Because I'm not doing anything with it. And I kept going on it. went, oh, I'll do something about it. So he went out and he said to me, he said, I've had a cover-up. I said, what have you gone for? He had a black sun. A black sun it was. Right. Put on his back. Just a, a, a tattoo of a black sun. And I'm thinking, so what have you done that for? So said, oh, I just thought it's, it's the only thing that's going to cover it up and everything because obviously Tweety Pie had, you know, a few different colours on it and things like that. And after a few weeks, after obviously, you know, the scabbing had gone and what have you, I looked at him one day and we're like, you can still see Tweety Pie through it. So not only has he got one really bad tattoo, he's got another really bad one put on top of it and you can see both of them. So listen, I, I can't really say much because of what I had, but I just thought that, yeah, that was a little bit different because he's actually then gone to go for a cover-up, but the cover-up's not worked. And yeah. It looks like, Tweety Pie just as the sun's going down. <laughs> nice. I think Tweety Pie, sun's barbed wire, that's about the only <laughs> things that Edison hadn't got on his body. One thing he has got, actually, interestingly, is the Portuguese league title on his leg after winning it with Benfica. Well, he's going to have to find oh. a lot of space, isn't he, at Manchester <laughs> just, City if his career carries on like this? Just a bit. He's been, like I say, he's been incredible and there's not enough plaudits to give Edison and Manchester City as a team. They've been the best team in the Premier League, arguably the best team in Europe as well. And they deserve all the plaudits and, and all the trophies that are going to come their way this season. And I think one of the things we have to talk about with Manchester City as well, we have to talk about Guardiola because every week we hear Manchester City, yeah, but they've had money, they've done this, they've done that. Yes, OK, of course they have, but all your top teams in Europe spend money. Let's flip it on its head and let's look at players that were already at the club before Guardiola came there. So we look at Aguero, was an unbelievable player. Sterling was progressing. Otamendi, it looked like he could be going out of the door. Fernandinho, good player. David Silva, brilliant. Kevin De Bruyne, brilliant. He's made all of them players better. He's made Otamendi, in my opinion, one of the best centre-backs in the Premier League. You know, he's near enough and ever-present now for him. I didn't think it was possible to take David Silva or De Bruyne or Aguero onto another level. He's done that. And he's made Sterling even better player. So... Yes, we can talk about the money that Manchester spent, as so have all the other clubs in the Premier League. But what I tend to do is look at the players that he's inherited. How much has he improved them? He's improved every single one of them. Fernandinho, in my mind, is probably one of the most important players for Manchester City. You know, Pep Guardiola was asked about him, wasn't he? You know, where would you play in this Manchester City team? He went, I wouldn't get him because of Fernandinho. You know, <laughs> you can't get many better compliments than that. I think a lot of people last season were happy that he failed. And they could say, oh, well, he's come to the Premier League. Look, it's a lot harder than what it seems and everything. Well, he shut them up now. There's no doubt about it. He's been absolutely magnificent from start to finish, the way his team play football. If he's able to continue this for the next few years, you know, they're an unbelievable team to watch. And in my mind, probably favourites to win the Champions League as well. 
You know, I think Liverpool is going to be a really stern test for them because Liverpool have shown that they can beat Manchester City. And I think it's going to be a great game. One of the best games that we've seen in a long time. Because there's going to be goals. There's no doubt about it. Both teams are on the front foot continuously. But I just think Guardiola deserves a lot of credit and sometimes he doesn't get it for what he's done for the players who were already at the football club before he went there. You said there that Liverpool's going to be a tough game. Can you make a prediction on how these two legs are going to go? I think there's going to be plenty of goals. The team's strengths are, are going forward. I think Liverpool at home, you know, an Anfield night, on a European night, it'd be incredible, be unbelievable. But Manchester City will go there and they'll, they'll be confident. I think, it's, I think it's going to be a very close game on a one-off a one-off game, I would say Liverpool, but because it's over two legs, I just think Manchester City will just have too much because Manchester City have got an unbelievably talented squad. Liverpool have got an unbelievably talented squad, but I think Manchester City have got more game changers on the bench to bring on if things aren't going right than Liverpool have. What a prospect we've got to look forward to. Hey, Danny, thank you for your company as always. Guys, thank you for listening at home as well. Keep your opinions coming on Twitter. Keep rating, commenting and subscribing to the podcast on iTunes as well. And do let us know what you think. We really, really appreciate the feedback you've given us so far and keep it coming. And make sure you tell your friends about the podcast as well. We'll see you next time. Hold up. 